I'm Robin Mallory Pratt, and sadly this is the last episode of Season 1 of Transforming Luxury, a special six-episode series presented by Klarna, in which we investigate the forces driving transformative change in the $300 billion luxury goods industry. Over the series, as we discuss market dynamics, product strategies, customer experiences, emerging technologies, new retail channels, and our imminent entry into the metaverse, the pressing need and increasing demand for systemic change to create a more sustainable industry was a consistent theme. And so, in this, our final episode of the season, we confront the distinct uncertainty and disruption facing both the luxury industry and us all as a result of the climate crisis. In 2020, BOF reported that the fashion industry's greenhouse gas emissions ranged from an estimated 4% to 10% of the global total. Without significant intervention, the industry will not align with the goals to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Failure to do so is predicted to have catastrophic consequences for civilization, as recently outlined in the UN's IPCC 2021 report. However, reducing, requestering, removing carbon emissions entirely is only one area where systemic change is required in what remains an unregulated industry. Inefficient and inequitable sourcing practices, along with toxic production processes, continue to stall positive progress. Despite efforts by some players, as much as 12% of fibres are still discarded on the factory floor. 25% of garments remain unsold. And the luxury industry has even further to go when it comes to adopting circular practices, with less than 1% of products recycled into new garments. What's more, rates of consumption continue to rise, despite the fact that we would require the resources of multiple planets to maintain them. However, as we're about to discover, if bold enough leadership is willing to reimagine how the industry operates, and is equipped with the deep pockets of market leaders and the wider margins and existing rigorous quality controls that already exist in luxury, luxury would be, in the words of one of my guests, uniquely positioned to transform itself, and in the process, have the opportunity to potentially become part of the climate solution, and not a major cause of the problem. Taking us right to the centre of the issues, I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by one of the original pioneers of circularity and luxury, Eileen Fisher, regenerative agriculture and land specialist, Megan Meeklejohn, the General Secretary of Aura Blockchain, Daniela Ott, and joining me first, Gail Galley. The UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs as they're known, are a collection of 17 interlinked global goals designed to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. Increasingly, the goals are being utilised as a framework to enable the collaboration necessary to drive positive change. Having built an impressive career in communications, Gail Galley co-founded the organisation Project Everyone with the mission of using the power of communications to drive adoption of the SDGs. Recently, she launched the Fashion Avengers to better engage the fashion industry with the goals. Gail, how has the fashion industry interacted with the SDGs in your experience? And what can it learn from other industries in how to interact better? Well, that's a really good question. Um, two questions. How does the fashion industry interact with the SDGs? I'd say in a word, slowly, certainly to start off with. Um, and I would not say it has in any shape or form reached uh, top speed yet. But I do remember, I think it was three years ago now, visiting the Global Fashion Agendas. And I walked around with my colleague Sarah and we noted that uh, there were some seeds of, of exciting and positive changes happening. 
but you wouldn't know it and and each one of them you had no sense of how they were interacting what the, what they were adding up to and it really set off this bell with us this light bulb that said if, if this industry was using the goals it would be easier for it to talk to itself for it to understand who was doing what who brought which game and, and I'd actually the month before I'd been to an ocean conference and and the ocean world, if if you could say such a thing, was is miles ahead. Like it is super super into its own goal of goal fourteen. So you could see who was doing aquaculture, you know, who was doing sustainable transport, who was doing tourism, etc. Whereas the fashion industry just looked like it was nowhere. Um, and I think there's a sense in at the macro that the goals are now accepted as the framework for change. You know, they're the most commonly understood. They're the most um, sort of joined up plan there is the to-do list as Richard calls it and you know fashion likes nothing less than not being fashionable so I get a sense now that that, that actually that momentum will uh, pick up and there's nothing like fashion to make something happen quickly and, and, and fashionably so I'm excited but it was definitely I felt quite a slow start. Your second question was uh, what can it learn from other industries now that is I mean so I've mentioned the sort of ocean industry there um, and what I th- what I've seen happen there is by putting aside difference and perhaps what might look like competition on the outside companies NGOs activists innovators finance have all come together with a spirit of you know must do not even can do but must do uh, because I think in the ocean goal in particular there's an understanding that they are at the very very base of that pyramid that is going to keep the earth and therefore us alive on it um, healthy so there's an urgency in that one that I think everyone understood but they came together quickly and it was led incredibly dynamically by Peter Thompson at the helm who's the UN's ambassador to the ocean so I think there's been some incredibly strong leadership there I think Paul Pullman both as an SDG advocate as a CEO of Unilever now as the founder of Imagine again incredibly strong leadership pre-competitive leadership uh you you're seeing that more and more in the food industry i think um where there's more a more sense of a sort of codependency on on each other and i, I mean don't mean human to human i mean you know mars to danon you know they all they're all drawing from the same farming they're all drawing from the same uh, you know avocado pool and coffee bean pool so you know it's kind of mad to compete and it's it's common sense to collaborate to succeed. I think it was Stella McCartney. I heard her first say, "You've got to think of fashion like farming." You know, and farmers are really good at collaborating. <laughs> That's my observation. People who work with the land tend to understand the the sort of real fundamentals of nature and how essential they are for us to thrive. So I think that if the fashion industry can look to yeah, I think it is the more natural industries, the food industry, the ocean industry, and behave like they do, and then radically collaborate and, and radically lead, then I think that's what's to be learned. And as I said earlier, they I think fashion could do both of those things better than anybody else, it's just if they choose to do so. Gail, one of the things you've mentioned before when I've heard you speak is the importance of taking shortcuts to power brokers. Yes, it's it. I mean, this we have built this system that is basically hell on earth haven't we we've built this globalized system that for a tiny and increasingly tinier fraction of the global population works quite well and we are all in that you know everyone who's probably listening to this call every guest you've had everybody i know well 
we're in the we're in the bubble. Paul, you know, again, Paul Pullman said it. We won the lottery of life that says we were born in the top five percent through no um, endeavor of our own. But the system we have that five percent rely upon is is pretty much hell on earth for every, for anybody else. And I feel like even in our privileged little corner, we're creating our own version of hell, which is email ossified by email. We can't act. I know we're all pandemic strapped at the moment, but even before then, everyone was too busy to get anything done. And like, how can that be? How can the luckiest, most privileged people in the world um, not be able to get anything done? I've heard these tales of, I mean, and, and I have a real love-hate uh, relationship with Davos, as you can imagine. But um, what can happen there, because I've seen it happen, I've been in those conversations occasionally, is you can have two people who, because they met and they had a, hilariously titled bilat which is the davos word for meeting um but because that happened something absolutely mahusif can can go off in a, in the right direction now we can't all go to davos and that cannot be the answer that we have to just big up davos and make it even bigger and better even though some people might enjoy that but um there was an apocryphal story a couple of years ago that said that a particular corporate leader i shan't mention was in talks with a particular Latin American leader who I shan't mention, but he's he's not the one who's projecting the rainforest, put it that way, and said corporate leader said, Do you who is very sustainably minded, do you want a company office in Sao Paulo? And and the leader said, Yes, I'd really like that. And so the corporate leader said, I mean, in effect, well would you stop chopping the rainforest down then? And the leader the world leader said, Okay, let's um, let's have a follow up meeting. Now that would have taken years many many g20s you know cops and that was just because they met now obviously that's an exceptional uh, example and we've seen that happen in humanitarian circles when the likes of a bill gates happens to pick up the phone to a modi or whatever and i think that is how that level works you know they, they do pick up the phone but actually the real potency would be if everybody in the 10 rungs below them picked up the phone as it were and and just did you know we were much less constrained i think i think our leaders are much less constrained than they think they are and it'd be so shocking wouldn't it in retro for someone to just give you a call hey gucci it's uh you know it's chanel and i was just wondering dot 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 so so i thought i'm a big fan of that and whenever i've seen that happen big big things big change can happen and then i'm also a big fan of the, the sort of trapdoors concept or like imagine snakes and ladders you spend sort of 25 years of your working life at grinding up the board as it were before you realize that there are certain squares that have got ladders on them and those squares might be a meeting a person a conference but when you do find yourself on a ladder or as say a trapdoor which could be someone going oh i know who you need to meet you need to meet such and such at ivian they're all over that or you know stella said this or there's there's a marketer in that company who's all over that so i just think rather than anyone sitting back now and relying on the process will deliver or you know the email group or you know let's do that at the next offsite in march just that whole constant personal challenge is that really the fastest way you can do that is there really no ladder or trapdoor that can help me get through this and i think that's the advice about it is to sort of outside i can't remember which um coach or mentor i've ever had who's spoke about this but it was someone in my past had said insight is a really brilliant thing and, and i think especially if you work in marketing and advertising so you, you spend your life trying to find the right consumer insight that's going to really sell whatever it is you're selling but outside is also a beautiful thing so within any given uh, industry or project chalking it through or bouncing it off of somebody who has nothing to do with your immediate world or company and then i think my, my last piece of wisdom on 
this and how do you change? And this is the hardest one, I think, particularly for the fashion industry. Came again from that speech that Paul gave at the GFA. He said, it's great innovation. You know, there's so much exciting innovation going on, but we actually have all the innovation we need. We now need human action and human will to change. And I th- and it starts with, you know, it starts with people who are in charge of businesses to, to lead that. You can't wait for consumers to change. That's not going to change the world fast enough. What are your thoughts on consumer habits or consumption being shifted to a digital world in order to make positive change and reduce the use of physical materials rather than the consumption habits themselves being addressed, which, you know, would appear to be very, very necessary? I mean, there's a rude answer to that, which I won't give you. I think that is, again, talking into that 5% of us who won the lottery you know, half the world hasn't got a toilet yet. Half the world isn't connected to any shape or form of internet. So when I hear Silicon Valley types talking about such things and tech coming to change the world, I am impatient and frustrated and quick to dismiss because those people who are stuck in the hellish system that us 5% have basically created and finessed over the years their lives are not going to get better because of smart glasses and virtual gaming experiences. And at the same time, you know, it's really difficult, this um, the conundrum that a lot of those people, however difficult their lives are and, and uh, unequal their reimbursement for their work, that, you know, the fashion industry employs millions and millions of people who need stuff to be made, actually made with their fingers, not with... Um, coding. So I get it's incredibly difficult. We do need to change the way clothes are made. We do need to change the volume that is made, how they are disposed of. But it's a trade that globally is lifting people out of poverty. I don't think whatever's going to come next is going to lift anyone out of poverty. It's going to lead to more inequality, suffering, pandemics. So no, I don't think that's the answer out. I think we have to look at what's made gets made, how people consume it use it buy it how long it lasts and then how it's disposed of i do believe that innovation plays a role like i said earlier and i also believe that consumer habits play a huge role but i think first and foremost in the decade we've got you know the commonly recognized nine years now we've got to try and turn the ship around as it were you've got to put leaders on the rack like leaders of the businesses we have now have to work together to figure out how we change not radically what you said there about how, do I think that um, the digital sort of shift can get us out of here? I think that is like saying, well, maybe, this, uh, maybe we could all live on Mars. Like maybe that's the answer. Let's like really, let's hope for that. And until then, let's carry on doing what we're doing. But maybe Mars or maybe Jupiter. Oh, yeah, I heard someone went to Jupiter. Yeah, that was kind of quite exciting. It's like my read answer was bollocks. You know, the majority of the world works, lives, suffers in in a dreadful, dreadful way because of the way this industry and we all in this 5% use it. And that's what has to be addressed. Now, a note from our partner, the CEO of Klarna, Sebastian Simiotkowski, who shares his insights generated by the payment company's 90 million active customers. We thought a lot about sustainability and what role can we play? Because we really wanted to make sure that for us, it wasn't just greenwashing, it wasn't just like, oh, we put this nice thing on our website. But it was something that we really felt could really make a difference and have an impact. And in our case, it really came back to, we realized, well, we are 
the richest network in the world in payments in regards to data because we don't only process the amount that you're buying for, we actually know the exact products and items and so forth. And so it felt very natural to then ask ourselves, well, that also should mean that we are extremely well positioned to really tell you what your carbon footprint is for all the purchases that you're doing and so forth. And then hopefully also be able to kind of nudge you and advise you that there might be a more better carbon footprint <laughs> impact of doing this. I mean, I think politics and all this stuff is great, but I'm a really big believer in it. it's like entrepreneurs coming up with new ideas and new products and services. Today I'm wearing Pangaea as we're doing this, which is an amazing brand as an example of that. But I also believe in like helping consumers vote with their wallets, right? So I can help them direct their money towards, you know, products that are better. If we can do that, then, then I think we can help and accelerate this change, right? As a global industry that relies on vast quantities of natural materials like cotton, luxury and farming are inextricably linked. Yet fashion's relationship to agriculture is rarely discussed. Given the levels of soil degradation, hyper-commercialized farming practices like monoculture farms are causing worldwide, this represents a significant business risk to the industry. Some analysts claim we have only 60 years of fertile topsoil remaining on the planet. What's more, farming practices are orientated around short-term profit as opposed to long-term ecological welfare, which could play a critical factor in undoing the harm that we've caused planet-wide. As we're about to hear, reimagining how fashion farms, and especially how the luxury industry cultivates its crops, could not only prevent further harm, but actually do some global good, according to Megan Minkeljohn, the Senior Vice President of Supply Chain Innovation at the Savory Institute's Land to Market Programme, who told me about her experiences with regenerative agriculture practices. I was at a, a ranch in Argentina in 2016. It was starting to drought. It was not a great landscape. There it was um, not a lot of biodiversity. There was a lot of bare soil. That's when I started learning about these concepts. And the one thing I'll remember is that we, we found a dung beetle at one point and I was told that's really good. We should be seeing a lot more of them. And that there was lichen on the ground and that's not a good sign. The soil is trying to like cover itself and that's its like last resort. I went back three years later after three good years of holistic management and regeneration and it was like I was in a completely different landscape. It was just so lush and there there was wildflowers everywhere, tons of dung beetles and butterflies and birds and like so it just sounded different, it felt different and it was beautiful and I think we have to celebrate that and luxury is in a, um, a unique position to do that. Why is luxury in, as you say, a unique position? I think the fashion industry in general is ripe for change. And as much harm that happens from the industry, I think the other side of that is that we can shift that to something positive. But the luxury industry, the luxury sector is uniquely positioned to kickstart those positive outcomes that we want to see because it just isn't it's inherent in their product. When you buy luxury, you expect high quality. At least I do. I don't know if this says something about my generation, but I also expect a story behind that su supply chain, really. If it's a 
very high cost item that is high quality and I see that it has that value, I would expect for whoever produced that bag to know where are the, those artisans that you were working with to manufacture this and where did this leather come from and what happened on the land? Was there exploitation in the supply chain or not? And I would really hope there wouldn't be, especially if you have that transparency and you're designing that, that, that beautiful product. There are larger margins just again, like the nature of luxury. So how do we kind of spread the wealth a little bit? Can we take some of that margin and put it back into the product and in the process and and the people who are making it? Uh, I think think there's just real um, opportunity there. I think luxury is so important because fashion overall, we, we are consistently devaluing products. Just clothing is so cheap now that for luxury to uphold that value is really important and, and that you know you do have to pay people to create a product of high quality. With that, I think there's opportunity for some of these brands to put a stake in the ground and say, we're not growing just to grow. We're not just going to meet you know our quarterly financial goals. We, we want long-term prosperity and we want to create the right amount of product. There's a lot of net zero commitments out there on carbon. I have not seen anyone's strategy reference reducing production. And this is even by brands who overproduce, meaning that they have to somehow get rid of product without devaluing their brand. And luxury has that opportunity because if you lower the amount of product you're making, you can also theoretically at least increase the the value of the products that you are making. And that's just all to say luxury has this this huge potential and for any of that harm that is currently being caused, that can be switched. That can be switched to to a positive outcome for artisans, ecosystems, and also the restoration of the beauty of our natural world. How much of a business risk exists for the luxury industry due to the quality of soil being diminished so significantly? I think the degradation of soil and ecosystems that we're seeing globally is a huge risk to us as citizens, to other industries, but also the fashion industry. I think of fashion as fundamentally part of agriculture. So anything that affects the agricultural sector will eventually hurt us uh, rather quickly. We're dependent upon those natural cycles, agricultural sowing and harvest cycles, and the way that we source, design, and, and produce goods for the fashion industry. So I do see it as a very big risk. Not only will it result in lower amounts of fiber, lower quality fiber and raw materials for us. But if we're going to keep producing at the same levels that we have been, which is too high, and we don't have those natural fibers and materials available to us, my fear is that will increase the amount of synthetic fibers that are produced for goods. So as much as there is this negative aspect to um, thinking about risk and how the ecosystems are being degraded, The other side of that coin is that we have this huge opportunity in front of us to switch that paradigm and to actually source materials and design our supply chains in a way that have this this huge positive impact on on the world, um, on the environment, on people. And it would take a, a paradigm shift in the way that we do business, though. If you have a brand that really wants to create that that net positive impact through the way that they source especially by increasing the uptake of regeneratively grown materials, 
they do have to shift the way that they do business. And that means shifting how you source. So a lot of brands are making commitments around uh, net zero. We also see biodiversity commitments. And then we see probably fewer, but transparency and traceability is also um, a very hot topic right now. Rather than just designing products, we need to design the supply chains that we wish to see. Because if we create a product and then try to look back and or even along the way, you know, uncover the, the traceability, it's sort of meaningless at that point and oftentimes quite literally impossible to do just with the nature of mixing of fibers throughout the supply chain. One of the ways to get through some of these barriers, because there, there's barriers everywhere to, to doing this sort of direct sourcing, but it's finding those key partners who not not only the partners from a farming perspective, but those key processors who are willing to go on that journey with you. Because at some point in the supply chain, somebody has to take on financial risk. I would love to see more brands start to invest in their supply chains and, and that whole portfolio of sustainable fibers. There's not enough in the world to meet all of the commitments that brands have right now. So I think we have to recognize that and we need to talk about the good things that are happening, even if it's small, you know, we have to start somewhere. So if it's a capsule collection for a brand today, great, market it, talk about it. Um, I think uplifting the, the farmers and the supply chain through storytelling is really important, but we just have to recognize that a brand cannot stop there. There should be more capsules the next year. It should be a, a full consistent product line the following year. We need to see that improvement, not only from the land perspective, but also from the brand perspective. And what are they doing? They, we need to see continuous improvement. And in order for for the fashion sector, the luxury sector, to, to really put its money where its mouth is in terms of these commitments that are being made, this issue of supply versus demand needs to be recognized because we have clearly have enough demand right now. We don't need more demand. We need more supply. And what we're seeing is that some brands who do recognize this issue, they're they're starting to invest at a, at a deeper level, sometimes through their foundations, through philanthropic donations, but they're putting money into farmers and, and networks in the regions where they're sourcing from. And what that money is going towards is the deployment of training and resources so that people can be trained in holistic management. How, how can you take a piece of degraded land and manage it in a way where it's beginning to restore itself? And, you know, you see all that, that function that we were talking about earlier and increases in biodiversity, carbon drawdown, et cetera. Once all those good things are starting to happen, then basically the byproduct of that, that flourishing ecosystem is these beautiful raw materials that we can use. So we, we do wanna see brands um, recognize where they can be strategic. If it's uptake right now, great, do that. But if it's to influence the growth of supply, that's amazing too, because we need, we need both to happen. One brand that has made a consistent effort to do better by investing in their supply chain partners, as well as introducing processes that support a circular economy through which products are transformed at the end of their life cycle in one use case to be given another, is Eileen Fisher. Eileen, I think some people believe that consumer pressure will be one day significant enough to force businesses to do better, to be more responsible. Whether that be more circular or more sustainable, whatever the methodology may be, there's also a large camp of individuals now that say that without better regulation, without a regulated fashion industry, there will just simply never be enough pressure to force businesses to change. Do you have an opinion on whether consumer interest and 
purchasing power could act as a catalyst to drive real change. Oh, yeah, I definitely think so. And I think regulation would be also a really important component could make a massive difference. Um, and, you know, I don't know how long that will take, so we can't wait. Um, but I think the more educated the consumers are, um, the more like, you know, you mentioned technology before, you know, this idea of being able to go into a store and, you know, click on a QR car, uh, code like you do in a restaurant, you know, with COVID uh, and find out, you know, where this, you know, get all the information on where this fiber came from and, you know, where it was dyed and where it was sewn and, you know, all those things, um, you know, uh, what it's made of uh, that I think that customers will get more and more savvy. And, and I actually think the next the younger generations already are much more um, you know, I think that's why they support vintage, why they're really interested in, you know, reselling their clothes or, you know, trading clothes with each other. They're, they're, they're just aware of the uh, environmental issue. And I do think you're right about the, the pandemic. I think that that really, I think that made a lot of us stop, consumers and um, industry people, and ask, what are we doing? What am I buying? What am I wearing? What do I really need? How much do I really need? I think it's creating a much more conscious consumer. How has increasing circularity within your business impacted your upstream design process? Oh, that's a good question. I would say that we were not built on circularity, just to be honest, because we started 34 years ago and um, you know, that wasn't a thing that one understood, you know. So we have had to try to, I don't say build that in. And we are really, we're really at the beginning of building in a, a circular model. I mean, we've been taking our clothes back and that's an important aspect of circular. But like you said, what do we learn when we take our clothes back? And we learn a lot about materials, and one of the things that it has done is I've come to really understand that each, each material needs to be recycled separately. I mean, we found a, a method, uh, you know, that's really kind of interesting, a felting that we can use blended fabrics and that kind of thing. But it's, it's not scaled fully yet, so it's complicated. But for the most part, materials need to be recycled one material at a time, and uh, which means that, you know, we've learned that we have to just start by using a lot less fabric. So we are using less, I mean, I'm going to say half the fabrics we were using a, a year and a half ago. Maybe that's not exactly right, but close to that. And really, you know, leaning in and focusing on the ones that we, we love and are most sustainable and we feel that we can figure out how to recycle, resell, or the ones that are most resellable and recyclable and all of that. And so... We're finding, you know, we're finding certain issues and trying to weed out certain fabrics and to reduce the number of fabrics. And the other thing, too, is what we do with the clothes that we can't resell is we deconstruct them and remake them into other things, which we're, again, still in the early stages of developing this in our little our tiny factory, which isn't so tiny, 20,000 square feet here in Irvington. But it's, you know, we're, we're working with that 
idea, but it means deconstructing garments. And so the simpler the garment, the easier it is to deconstruct it and remake it into something else. So more seeming details, more complexity, zippers, buttons. We haven't really figured out how to recycle zippers, for example. I'm sure someone's got an idea out there, you know. I think in, probably in denim, people are people have ideas for us, but, you know. One of the challenges of approaching overconsumption through circularity is the skill set required by your workforce that they be creative enough and skilled enough to take products in one form and reduce them and then reform them in another. How have you approached building a team that can do that? And what are the challenges and opportunities you see in creating a skilled craft workforce that is capable of succeeding in circular fashion? Oh, man, that's really... Uh, excellent question. For us, it's just sorting. There's a massive issue in just sorting all of the products that come back. People have to be well trained to recognize, you know, the difference in the subtleties of the fabrics and all of that and, you know, get them into the right places so they can be recycled uh, and repurposed. So that's sort of the first thing. And that that's just massive. And it also takes up a vast amount of space which costs money, you know. And then what we're doing with the pieces that we can't resell that, that aren't in good enough condition is what I was saying is deconstructing and re, you know, remaking. Or we're doing a, a felting process, which is pretty interesting, you know, that actually it's a new way of working with a felting process, needle punch, that we don't see anyone else yet doing in the recycle industry but we are you know sort of still at a place where we're trying to figure out how to market what we're creating you know we can sell little bags and things like that through our stores because we you know we're in this business but we're not really in the home furnishings business or you know selling pillows and wall pieces and selling to architects it's another whole business to develop and you are asking about the craft piece too. What we're doing is definitely creating a whole new craft. There's sort of different aspects. One is just actually remaking garments into other garments, and that's a whole thing which we've done. And it's pretty hard to scale that kind of work, you know. So we we still struggle with how we do that. And we like the felting because it feels like we can scale it. But we also need to train artisans. So we've started um, connecting with Parsons and that we have a couple of interns working. And we, we like to build into the educational aspect of this craft. But we're, we're new at it and we, you know, we haven't fully proved its scalability. We see it and we know it's there, but we haven't translated into, you know, large machinery. And, you know, we have scaled up a bit believe that there's really a business case for it, but, you know, haven't really figured out how to really scale it. I see the possibility. It just, it's another whole business. It's like three businesses. It's we're in the clothing business and we know that business and have built that business, but we're talking about other businesses. So we need investment. We need to figure out how to build that. And it's been a little hard during COVID, you know, because we've had to watch every Every, every penny in every area of our business to you know, kind of survive through the difficult time, you know. How massive is the scale of investment that would be required to create the factories or huge plants that would be needed to process 
the vast amount of clothes that we create today and enter them into a circular system? I can't answer that. It's big. You're right. And I think it does come back to consumption because maybe we are just trying, maybe it's just too much. And maybe something that's happened, I think, through this pandemic, and I don't know if it's happened to other companies like it happened to us, but it forced a slowdown. One of the things that we did that really changed is we used to do monthly deliveries. And though we still do monthly deliveries, the monthly deliveries kind of, they're designed to coordinate and build on the previous delivery. So it it stops the markdown cycle from being so crazy. And so that instead of having to mark down last month's inventory because all the colors didn't go and everything was just completely different and then you brought in a fresh new delivery, everything coordinates. So it's a much more massive effort of how does the whole thing go together? How does the season work? How do the months work? How do we flow product? That kind of thing. So um, that's really helped us a lot. And, you know, what we've seen is our margin grow and our sell-throughs grow. We're producing less, but our sell-throughs are much higher than they were before COVID. So I'm happy about that. I think that it's possible to slow down and still be profitable. You know, I always tell the people in my company, we were profitable at every size. We don't have to be huge. And sometimes the bigger you get, the more crazy it gets. So, you know, so there's something to be said for slowing down and helping the customer to understand the value of the things she's buying and how to build a wardrobe that's conscious or sustainable or, you know, that she'll keep from year to year and just add a few things to. Everything doesn't go out of style. That's a really important sort of get rid of the planned obsolescence piece and you know, just commit to what's the luxury market is in a position to do this. Commit to good quality, which is already there and you know, sustainable and timeless kind of styles, and but also in the business model and how things flow and how to get the waste out of the system so we're not sitting on too much inventory and, you know, that kind of thing. That's a lot. One solution that has found significant support in the industry is the adoption of blockchain technology in supply chains in an effort to increase transparency and thus enable improved standards. Daniela Ott is the General Secretary of the Aura Blockchain Consortium. Daniela, can you tell me how significant a tool blockchain technology is when we think about transforming the global luxury supply chain? Yeah, sure. I mean, in a nutshell, incredible significant, I think, for all stakeholders of the global luxury supply chain. So from our brands, our mem- which are our members, to manufacturers, distributors, and really our clients. The first aspect being Aura is the main blockchain really covering upstream and downstream, meaning covering the entire life cycle of the luxury production and consumption. So that means our members can trace their products through the complete supply chain and product life cycle to ensure that its correct and ethical working conditions are ensured and also to share about the environment. As I mentioned, our is upstream and downstream. So upstream implying the possibility to actually share rich content and information about the source of raw materials, after sales services from the brands, and really connect this with the brand directly. And that can include direct personal communication between the brand and the client. That can be, for instance, certificates of ownership, certificates of authenticity, then products are gifted or passed on to family members or transferred in resale. 
And that means the new owner can also access the same information which the brand has put on the blockchain. And we record that for 100 years. So again, this information is stored for 100 years and we provide the tools to really reduce counterfeiting and gray market. So this means blockchain has many applications to actually to solve some of the main challenges which we have in the luxury goods industries, ranging from counterfeiting, gray market, transparency upstream in the supply chain, but also really in terms of giving transparency to the end client in a much more direct way. A second aspect, which I think is really important, is to have a sustainable blockchain solution. I mean, sustainability is key for our founding members. So our founding members are LVMH, Richemont, and Prada Group. And ours is probably today the most sustainable blockchain solution because we are a permissioned blockchain. So unlike traditional blockchains, which use decentralized data infrastructures all over the world, our is a private, permissioned, and local blockchain. So for instance, Aura's infrastructure actually does not consume more energy than normal use of CRM or websites or internal tools. And it's part of our roadmap that we actually carbon neutral by 2025. Daniela, one of the concerns about blockchain is the need for an opaque and complex supply chain to enter reliable data at every stage. How are you tackling that issue? It's really important that before exploring an upstream traceability use case, that actually a brand must first establish a close partnership with its supply chain partners. And without having a track and trace process in place between the brand and its suppliers or manufacturer, a brand actually risks putting suboptimal information on the blockchain. So once you have this sort of track and trace process established, then you can use Aura. And here again, Aura has this very low cost and easy tool to implement the information. And, you know, the entire process is digitized and automatically. So actually that the brand can focus on having the right information, having this relationship with its suppliers. So again, our purpose is really to, to ensure that blockchain doesn't have a prohibitive cost and there's no massive cost in actually implementing smart contracts. So really the idea is um, the brand can focus on its business and having the right information Can you tell me a little bit more about what the opportunities and challenges are in enabling major independent businesses to benefit from more open information flows and to recognize what they can achieve working together? Personally, I'm convinced that actually collaborations today is essential and whether it's tackling the pandemic or the global climate challenge, I think we will see collaboration be really at the heart of business going forward. The Our Blockchain Consortium was really born from that vision that collaboration can coexist with competition in pursuit of a greater good. And I think that really brings the competitors together. So the greater good here is really putting the consumer at the center and the planet. So two years ago, LVMH and the Prada Group and Cartier, part of Richemont, they actually joined forces to create a separate entity in form of a nonprofit association. So the Our Blockchain Consortium is a non-profit association based in Switzerland. And um, I can see that really when you say challenging, I mean, personally speaking, I can see that really on a day-to-day basis. Um, I have a board composition out of representatives from LVMH, Richemont, Cartier, and Prada. And actually each group has a very distinctive culture, different type of brands and products. 
And each culture really brings so much added value to the table. So it's not just that our members are very diverse, but I think it's also the founding members in itself. And it's really about coming together, collaborating and sharing. I think the whole is really greater than the sum of the parts. Personally, as being the Secretary General, I perceive that not as a challenge, but actually as a great, if you want to say, as a great luxury, because really having these different cultures coming together makes it just even more faster and richer in terms of the learning and creating together. Daniela is not alone in her conviction of the growing importance of collaboration and cooperation in the industry. It was a topic I had discussed with Gail Galli also. A number of managers, directors, a number of juniors, graduates will be listening to this podcast. If we could think about it in rough terms as leadership, professionals, and you know, new entrants to, to the working world or the fashion industry, what would you ask them to do immediately on the back of listening to this episode? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and, and actually, just to, on that point about it's not just leaders, it's, every, it's people who work for them. I've, I've been a CEO before, and uh, what struck me really soon was how little ultimate power you have. You are totally reliant on the support and innovation and hard work of everybody else who works for you. And I'm not saying that because I'm nice, it's a fact. You know, and there, there are some really bloody minded people who work for me. That were, it was annoying that I had to, you know, wait until they could, could be bent around to my way of being. So so the leaders will do what their people ask them, I think, not least because it's a real ball ache to have to find new people. So um, what I would ask would be that every single person in any position of power within a company. So you may be the hottest new joiner. That's powerful because then I want you to go join another company. But you're probably somewhere near you know, the senior exec team, uh, I would ask them to call a meeting, invite someone from the outside, you know, a me, but a type, a type, there's hundreds of me's, whether they're coming from uh, orgs, you know, NGOs or the UN or campaigns or whatever. Um, and honestly have, uh, be open to challenge of, is that the best you can do? That Have a real look at yourself and set yourself, whether it's a net zero plan, whether it's a, a joining the planet pledge with the WFA, uh, I, I, we, are we really doing as much as we can do? And if, and the answer will be no. And then let's, let's make a plan urgently, uh, so that with, by the cop even, you know, by three months time, we've got a plan. And then in a year's time, we've got some progress. And then in five years time, maybe we've got transformation. So I would, that, that's what I would say. Don't hide from it anymore. Um, come up, show up with full humility, ears wide open, and invite some people in with that'll give you the outside and the connections. You know, I am not sitting here for one second pretending this is easy for any company in any industry. And I think, as we've said, the fashion industry, for so many different reasons, has got so many different challenges. Um, and, and I don't want to crash the plane because it employs a lot of people. So none of it is easy, um, but all of it is urgent. So if you're not having that meeting in your first week back after your holidays, uh, set it up and and be brave enough to invite the boldest people in to help you. You know, they they, they can help you navigate that path, um, which is why, we, again, so we set the Fashion Avengers up, which is a coalition of people in fashion and around fashion to um, to try and support each other through it. Because equally, the challenge, I think, is, and, and fashion, is, uh, the industry is absolutely right to say this, you try and make a sort of slightly more public-facing statement about your intention 
and you get shut down. Um, and I get and I get that, and that's hard and unpleasant and supremely discouraging to anybody else doing the same. But I, I, what I do see from other industries is when several people do it together, particularly if they lead with a message like, "I don't have the answer. I'm not perfect, but we, the food people, or we, the fashion people, are really trying." Uh, so come and help us. That that's what I would advise. Those are all of my questions, Gail. But um, I would love for you to add anything that you believe compelling that I've missed, or anything that you think is an important um, for for you to share. Anything that you think relevant to the conversation. Well, I think I think the thing we haven't touched on on camera, as it were, that we did start talking about earlier was how do you get an industry to shift from sort of a defensive position of do no harm to a much more proactive position of how can we be sort of genuinely positive in the world how we and, and the impact we have there's a phrase that is beginning to circulate uh, in ahead of cop to complement the the drive to a net zero world which is, has taken off and i think people understand now um and that is nature positive you know how do we as a business support the natural world in a way that is not just we're not damaging it but actually super enhancing it respecting it is the lifeblood of the entire planet we're that we're part of you know so to be anything other than nature positive is kind of self-harming and how can an industry like fashion use its it's everything but i I guess because we were talking about it early particularly it's 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 mouthpiece and whether that is it's magazines it's stores it's fashion shows it's billboards in airports to really drive that nature positive message because and then in the business obviously to become a nature positive business there's there's polling on it from around the world that shows that this is what people want so consumers want this and if fashion is like Stella said farming then why would you not try and make your soil as, as it were, as uh, as positive as possible. It's, it's in your own interest to do that. What I wouldn't do is ask them to strip off one inch of their creativity and their gorgeousness, because that is what I think, you know, fashion is, that's its superpower. I mean, I actually have traditionally really loathed the fashion industry for for all its ills. But the one sort of guilty pleasure I always have was catching whiff of a, of a really brilliant fashion show. If the fashion industry could stop trying to do less harm, and really gear itself up to be nature positive, then I think it would be a, a step change in positive impact. That, because fashion is fashion, other people would follow. Sadly, that brings us to the close of season one of Transforming Luxury. It has been an absolute privilege to have so many fascinating conversations with our esteemed guests, and I'm hugely appreciative of everyone who gave up their time to be a part of the podcast. I'd like to thank our partner, Klarna, for making this investigation into the future of the personal luxury goods industry possible. I'd also like to take a minute to thank the incredible team behind the scenes from the BUF studio, Isabel Shu, Alice Jividen, Sophie Saw, Chanel Wickmorante, Emma Clark, Amy Vienne, Chelsea Carpenter, our producer, Sophie King, and finally, most importantly, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Please do let us know your thoughts on the series and what you'd like to hear more of. In case you've missed an episode, make sure you're following Transforming Luxury wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Robin Mallory-Pratt, and that was season one of Transforming Luxury. Thanks for listening. <laughs>